Hello, and welcome to another all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. And I am your co-host, another one of your co-hosts, Connor Rackamero Stratton. I think it's time that we switch up our opening. I think instead of music, it's like open on a black screen. And then it's like coming at you down a dark road. Good poems. <laughs> we got a book load. Oh, I'm a wow. man. Yes, no, maybe. I think we should put it under consideration and submit it, you know, to the select committee on openings and, you know, maybe it won't die in the Senate. I don't know. I certainly hope it doesn't because I feel pretty good about it. Anyway, this is Close Talking, the podcast where we read a poem, talk about the poem, and then read the poem again. This week, we are talking about Tenebris by Angelina Weld Grimke. And before we get into the poem, very quickly, if you like this podcast, it would mean the world to us if you hopped on over to Apple Podcasts and gave us a five-star rating and wrote a review, because that is by far the best way to help more people find the show. And it makes us feel so good when we read those reviews, because, you know, who doesn't like to hear something nice? Angelina Weld Grimke is a woman who was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. She herself was mixed. Her mother was white. Her father was actually also mixed. She wrote poetry, essays, and also plays. She had a couple of very well-known plays that were specifically anti-lynching plays, but she wrote on other subjects too. She was a fairly prominent woman writer from the Harlem Renaissance, and she was also a queer woman. There were a lot of different poems that she never published that point to this, and there were also letters between her and other correspondents that indicated most scholars say pretty well beyond any doubt that she was in fact queer, because there are a lot of love letters to, to women, and even one, I believe, where she talks about wanting one of her female friends talking about wishing that she could be her, her wife. I did also, she came from a family of several prominent abolitionists i think she was born in 1880 so after the civil war but her at least one side of her family was very active in the abolitionist movement um it had been a while since i had sort of gone through harlem renaissance literature and yeah i was really glad that we get to spend some time with grimke because she's a great writer this poem is so good and evergreen in a sad way so Indeed, yeah, I think we're going to get into a lot of the evergreen aspects of this poem. But let's not go on any further without actually reading the poem. <laughs> Here it is, Tenebris by Angelina Weld Grimke. There is a tree by day that at night has a shadow, a hand, huge and black, with fingers long and black, all through the dark against the white man's house. In the little wind, the black hand plucks and plucks at the bricks. The bricks are the color of blood and very small. Is it a black hand or is it a shadow? And that's the whole poem. It's very short. It has, shorter than a sonnet. It, it, it is shorter than a sonnet. 
it has many fairly short lines, so I think it looks a little bit longer than it actually is on the page, but reading it, you get a real sense. That's one of those times when I found reading it aloud really beneficial to actually realize how short and condensed the poem was, because on the page, it's not long, but it's enough lines to start confusing you about its length, I think. And I, I think it's good to start off talking about line length because one of the most striking things when you do see it on the page is that there is one line that's very long, especially compared to all the others, which is the bricks are the color of blood and very small is all one line, which doesn't necessarily sound that long when you just say it, but almost all the other lines are like three or four words, maybe. If there are more, it's very short. There is a tree by day. Like, four of those words are three letters or less. You know? So it that really stands out. The bricks are the color of blood and very small, which comes close to the end and almost serves as, like, a delineation before the final question the poem poses. Is it a black hand or is it a shadow? It's almost like drawing a line underneath the poem that came before, setting you up for that final question in terms of how it ends up laying out the page. Yeah, I think it's probably twice as long as, almost twice as long as the the next longest line. I think it's like 12 syllables. Yeah, that line is so striking. Okay, I have a lot of questions and thoughts, but before we dive too deep, we often do a little play-by-play, a little summary action. This one is pretty straightforward, I think. The speaker is talking about a tree, and at night has a shadow that sort of spreads across a house, the white man's house, and the poem describes the black hand of the tree's shadow, um, which one reading of it could be, you know, the the branches of the tree are like the fingers in the hand or something like that, is, is plucking at the bricks of the house. And then the speaker asks, is this a black hand or is this a shadow? That's pretty much... Like, in terms of action, that's basically all that is going on. Yeah, the only real sense of any time happening is that little bit where you hear about the little wind and the black hand that plucks and plucks. It's sort of a, almost a, a very quick snapshot scene where you kind of get an image and then it, it has that little bit of motion to it. But that's about it. Yeah, you're pretty locked into the moment. Going along with our, you know, quick little narrative rundown is also the title tenebris which i think would be a good place to start connor you took latin in high school hit me with that (laughs) definition of tenebris so it means like darkness or like in darkness and it's something that's shown up in many different places in literature before um oscar wilde has a poem called e tenebris thomas hardy has a poem i think called in tenebris and jk rowling noted poet of contemporary mythology (laughs) Uh, The name of the Thestral that Hagrid brings to meet his class in the fifth Harry Potter book is named Tenebrus with a U.S., which maybe is a different form of the verb, but J.K. Rowling is really into Latin adjacent names, and the Thestrals are, of course, the skeletal winged horses that haunt the Forbidden Forest of Hogwarts, and which you can only see the physical form of after you have witnessed death. So... You know, if you want to go read Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix after this, go nuts. Um, There's also the famous quote from the (laughs) Gospel of John, and I cannot pronounce Latin super well, so Connor, you, you know, correct me if I get too crazy here. Um, (laughs) But 
et lux in tenebris lucet et tenebrae cam non comprehenderunt et lux in tenebris lucet et tenebrae eam non comprehenderunt right and give me the official yeah. definition on that one <laughs> your, well, your learned counsel is needed oh gosh well like so et is and lux is light tenebris is darkness lucet is the verb which i guess would be shine probably so like and light shines in the darkness and the darkness like comprehended it not <laughs> right Okay. And I know that that line has shown up in as, as like a reference point in a number of different pieces of literature throughout the years. It's sort of a, it's a good line that's gotten pilfered and is used sort of, you know, as little epigrams here and there to, to make points. Yeah. And it's so, it's interesting, like there seems to be, there's a, a reading of the poem of it's like, you know, if you have your, your narrative thing and then you go like one step below to like what it means there seems to be like a pretty clear if very 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 basic meaning of the poem i think insofar as you know you have this tree that has a shadow that is compared to a black hand that is sort of plucking at the bricks the blood red bricks of a white man's house. And, you know, this is, it was published in an anthology that came out, I think in 1927, the yep. um, Caroling Dusk, which uh, County Cullen was the editor of that. So, you know, it's, it's right in, you know, the era of Jim Crow. And, you know, as we talked about, you know, she had, I think, probably before this written a, a play, you know, strong anti-lynching play. So to me, there's like at least one very basic reading of it is like in the face of the, the bloody violence imposed and, and, you know, wrought by the white man's house and by white supremacy and Jim Crow era lynching violence, but also other kinds, there is a black resistance to that violence and to that house maybe subversive or you know it's not the although there is this kind of resistance the there it's not a direct like you know called a like the the black hand in the poem is not burning down the house right it's sort of plucking at the bricks so that's this kind of shadowy subversive resistance against this kind of violence i guess the way the um, poem talks about that also is more descriptive than like a call to action. It's more a description of action than saying you must become the black hand that plucks the bricks. You know, it's not directed right. out towards the audience as like describing something that then pushes those who read it to do a specific kind of resistance or action. It's more about describing the nature of a situation. Yes, exactly. And the fact that, and you know, I think this has been talked about in a, in a couple different places where I've seen sort of criticism about the poem and Grimke. The tree is has a uh, clear resonance with like a lynching tree. And 
So there's an added layer of both just that, but that also, you know, there's another poem by Grimke that's just called Trees, where a tree is depicted as kind of like, you know, a symbol of good things and life and whatever. And then it's suddenly kind of like the line is uh, amid the wistful sounds of leaves, a black hued gruesome something swings and swings. Um, And that kind of like erupts out of nowhere from this like seemingly harmonious, peaceful poem about trees. So there's like in terms of like uh, I guess I'm thinking about there's the tree that is the metaphor. What is it a metaphor of? There's at once kind of like the tree being a force of, you know, black resistance, but there's also kind of the black body being, you know, hung from the tree or swinging from the tree. That's like also doing maybe a kind of haunting or something like that, if that makes sense. Obviously, I started I started off saying that we had a, a clear reading. And as soon as I started getting into it, things quite get muddy and very muddy indeed. That so often <laughs> happens. Um, yeah, yes. I totally agree with what you are describing, because reading through it, I think you're inescapably thinking about lynchings in the context of trees, and particularly the invocation of the white man's house or the bricks, the color of blood, like it's trees and violence in the 1920s, like a, a, written by Angelina Well Grimke, like it, you're, you're in that space. Um, it comes about 10 years later, but I was, you know, kind of inescapably thinking of uh, Strange Fruit, which was eventually the Billie Holiday song, but was originally a poem by Abel Miropole. So just thinking about this sort of poetic tradition of trees and how they were showing up in poetry and art at the time, like that's a theme that runs through these essentially interwar years, which were part of this real low point for black life in the South in the United States. There's this really interesting article that I found that's mostly about lynching photographs, but it references the Tenebris poem, and I I thought it was kind of relevant here. Started by mentioning the poem as like, Tenebris could provide the caption to this one photograph of a lynching, but then the critic goes on to talk about um, perhaps the poem is part of the trope of the accusatory black finger come to haunt the American national psyche for all the harm it has inflicted upon black bodies. But what is interesting about this picture, not only what the dead black body is possibly doing to haunt the White House, but also what the White House is doing to taunt the black body, which strays a little more from the poem itself. But there, I guess that photograph talking about that, thinking about that passage You know, there's this binary relationship in the poem between the white man's house, you know, and the the black tree or the black hands of the tree. There's a lot of um, ambiguity, I think, in the poem that is deliberate. You know, when you get to the very end of the poem, is it a black hand or is it a shadow? You know, Grimke could have easily made that a declarative statement. It's interesting you were talking about how the poem is descriptive and not like prescriptive as a call to action. But then even by the end, it sort of retreats from even a descriptive certainty where it's like, is this a black hand or is this a shadow? 
I have some thoughts, but I was curious about what you made of either the ending or I don't know, the the kind of the idea of using the like a shadow of a tree as a, a symbol in this way. Definitely. I was thinking about that quite a bit because this poem is also not the only time that she likened a tree to a black hand or finger because she actually has a poem called The Black Finger, which is short enough that I think I'm just going to read it real quick because I think it's informative in thinking about this poem and this poem is informative in thinking about that one. The Black Finger. I have just seen a most beautiful thing, slim and still against a gold, gold sky, a straight black cypress. Sensitive, exquisite, a black finger, pointing upwards. Why, beautiful still finger, are you black? And why are you pointing upwards? So that is interesting to me because it sort of mirrors this poem in that it also ends on a question, and it's also about trees and, to some degree, blackness. And those questions in that poem feel more pointed than this one, which made me reflect more on why is this question seemingly, in one reading, maybe diffusing some of the power that was built up in the poem, because it's injecting this note of uncertainty to one of the first things that is declared, which is, there is a tree by day that at night has a shadow, a hand huge and black. So it takes this very quick train of tree, which is then in some sense maybe empowered or given life by the darkness that casts this shadow, which is transformed into a huge black hand. But then you almost ramp back down at the end where this chain you've run through from tree to shadow to black hand is then going black hand, or is it a shadow? And then maybe is it going back to a tree, even though it doesn't say that at the end? So is this maybe giving us a sense of like, what happens over the course of the night every night in darkness, as the poem would tell us? Is this the sun beginning to rise at the end, where you start to question even the nature of the shadow? And then in that context, thinking about dark, light, white, black, does that point to the position or lack of power that this black hand has, which is indicated, I think, by the lines, the black hand plucks and plucks at the bricks, the bricks are the color of blood and very small. What I was thinking about there is both plucks is an interesting choice, and we sort of talked about that a little bit, of like it's not sweeping aside the bricks or setting fire to the house. It's like these small actions. But then the main thing I was thinking to myself, because the color of blood is kind of obvious as like a really forceful way to describe red bricks, but why are they small? Why are the bricks very small? I haven't seen small bricks. Bricks are not uniform in size, and particularly in the 20s, there were a lot of places making their own bricks that might be slightly different, but very small. Why are they very small? And it made me think that by making the bricks very small and talking about the white man's house, which obviously the most immediate connection is a plantation house, but I think it's pretty easy to also read it as maybe the white house or as a stand-in for the establishment of white society. If it's made of these very small bricks, and we know that in the United States, many of the monuments that exist, there's even a joke in Spider-Man Homecoming, not really a joke, but they make a joke out of the fact that the Washington Monument was partially built by slaves. And so was the White House. And, you know, the, the country was built on the 
backs of unpaid and exploited labor. So when the bricks are very small, it means that many more had to be laid to build this house. So it accentuates the pain that went into its construction. It also accentuates the futility of plucking at them, because if you're plucking at bricks that are very small, you're making less of an impression against them. So it both accentuates the pain of creation and points back to the futility of the black hand's work against it. And so that's sort of where I went with that, like what's going on at the end. It's this re-emphasis of the struggle to create any sense of power that is durable and lasting. Because as I said, the, the feeling I got from that last two lines of question, is it a black hand or is it a shadow, is that this is almost like Penelope in the Odyssey, who every night undoes the stitching on the tapestry she does during the day because the deal she's made with the suitors who have come while Odysseus is away is that when she finishes her tapestry, she'll pick one of them to marry. But every night she takes the threads out, but then every day she's forced to stitch more and it does in fact grow slowly. It's like that kind of futility of like whatever work this shadow can do in the night the sun always comes. It always transforms from black hand back to shadow, back to static tree during the day. And then whatever it did during the night is undone in the light. It's almost like the reverse Penelope. I know I went that's... to a lot of places there. Sorry. That, that... <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> that, was, um, that was where I went. To start in a, yet another place that might get us to a similar place. One way that I was starting to think about the how to read the ending was just it's funny in the beginning you know there is a tree by day that at night has a shadow and the fact that the shadow is happening at night when obviously the more prominent shadow of the tree would be during the day when the sun is out and any shadow that a tree would cast at night would be by moonlight or something very faint and also would be a shadow upon the whole shadow of night and now thinking about what you were saying about the the work being done at night that then becomes a shadow during the day or the work becoming undone when the sun comes out you can only kind of ask the question like the tree's shadow is clearly a shadow during the day perhaps and maybe not a black hand whereas at night because it's essentially like black on black or darkness on darkness you actually can have uncertainty or you can perhaps be able to imagine this as a as a black hand rather than the shadow of a tree and it's interesting that that you i think it makes a lot of sense and i really love what you were what you were doing with the smallness of the bricks and how futile and painful that process of plucking must be. And that word plucking is so good. There's, I mean, there's such a great sonic moment. I mean, throughout the poem is very um, rich with sound, but the kind of the cuh sounds like huge and black, fingers long and black, that then returns to the black hand plucks and plucks at the bricks the bricks are the color of blood and very small like plucks and bricks are you know the two main words along with dark that have the k sound you know with black it's interesting because at the same time as it being kind of such a struggle 
it's also she's locating the moment where you you know in in what i was if you accept the plausibility of my reading or whatever the the speaker is locating the moment when you can actually sort of imagine this tree as not a shadow but a black hand or something so is both and the other way that i was thinking about the end is that the the uncertainty itself is a kind of haunting aspect too i mean it like this is a not a great comparison and is only it's just the one that i can think of because it's the most obvious but in a horror movie the scariest times or the times when the you know the characters feel most under threat is like when they don't know what's going on right and always in a horror movie when the thing is finally explained the the horror movie loses all of its power at least in my head and the there was a lot of talk about that in the alien franchise when alien covenant came out and they actually showed an entire xenomorph in the full daylight on top of the spaceship in the trailer and everybody was like what are you doing? We loved Alien because it was like hidden and creepy on the spaceship because they had no money in the 70s. This is a travesty. I haven't seen the movie, but <laughs> that was like yeah. the biggest complaint. And I feel like that's maybe the best franchise example of like going from one extreme to the other. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I know I, I don't watch a lot of horror, but I last year I saw that movie Hereditary. Um, oh, no. Which was actually very, very good until the very end when, <laughs> you know, they just explain it and the explanation is like complete absurdity. And it's just, it's interesting because on the one hand, you can read the question as a recognition of, you know, the potential lack of power and what this resistance has. On the other hand, oftentimes I feel like the, the work of, subversive resistance has its its power in its haunting and ambiguity kind of thing excellent point i think that's really right on it's also there's worth and i don't know the answer to this question but the poem changes a lot depending on who the audience is to present a crude binary if the poem were only to a white audience i feel like the question has a lot more power or it, its hauntingness is more pointed and the you know in the passage of, about the photograph if you know the the black body and the tree is haunting the white house you know if the poem is to or to only white audience then it's doing its haunting better by the question being asked but if it's only for a black audience you could imagine it being like less about that hauntingness and more being like, what is it? What is the resistance work? What is it that we're really doing or something? Or is this accomplishing kind of what you were talking about? What is the power in this plucking or something? A, obviously I have no idea who Grimke was writing toward and B, I'm sure it's, it's never like as clean cut as only this or only that. Although, interestingly, you know, we just talked about in our last episode about Toni Morrison, some poems that she wrote, and one of the great moments, well, you know, two great moments from Morrison of many. One is that, that one interview when the, like, 
white interviewer is like, when are you going to write about white people or something? And she says, you know, you have no idea how profoundly racist that question is. And goes on to talk about how Russian writers only write about Russia and everyone seems to think that's fine. And so for her to only write about black characters is not a quote unquote limit uh, on her work as the sort of the interviewer's question assumed, you know, in the question. And the other thing was that she talked about how um, certain writers like Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison in their works, you know, she said invisible about invisible man, you know, Toni Morrison was like invisible to whom, you know, certainly he was not, you know, that man is not invisible to me. She, she sort of said that Ellison was kind of writing for, at least in part, a white audience. James right? Baldwin had a short, uh, I guess you would call it, essay on the same subject where there was a, a young black poet who had said something along the lines of, you know, I don't want to just be a black poet. Essentially, when I grow up or like when I become successful, I don't remember the exact terminology, but it's saying he wanted to be something, quote unquote, like more than a black poet. And... Um, Baldwin is reflecting on both how profoundly sad that is and like what are the conditions that could create somebody who is thinking that way about their success in like a literary field specifically where it's like why is blackness a limit in that context Um, and has some of the same kind of statements which is basically like well if you grow up and everybody tells you that it is then maybe you're going to start thinking that way it doesn't need to be and it shouldn't be and he hopes that this young poet grows beyond that. Yeah. Oh, that no, that's really that's really interesting. And I can't speak to who like Grimke had in mind or didn't have in mind when she was writing this poem, but I do think the kind of like in the ambiguity of how to read the ending as you consider the audience that has, you know, a bearing on like where you might read the poem. And of course, perhaps part of the power of the poem is that if you have a poem that's like, for example, just very directly questioning, like, what power does this resistance have or something like very explicitly, in a sense, the ambiguity may allow the poem to do double duty, where a white reader reads this and is is kind of haunted by the question at the end or like it has a more pointed nature you know black reader or another a reader of from a different subject position reads this and gets a different reading out of it it's the same poem but it's just yeah it it's now that i'm thinking about it this would be a great teaching poem because when people are first starting to write the question of ambiguity is such a hard one because when it's done badly, it's just unclear. It's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, is the pair um, your mother? Is it God? Is it a pear? You know, are you eating the pear? Is the pear also an apple? Like, we just don't know what's happening. A but when ambiguity apple with a cool shape. <laughs> what's that from? Is that from anything? Groovy apples? I don't know. Oh, okay. Pears right. are cool. Just... Pears are like, like a cool apple, right? All They're right. like basically yeah. apple shaped, but a little bit cooler. 
Okay. I don't know. I've had a lot of time to think about pears. My mom collects images of pears. I can't explain it. That's great. I just, you said that like it was kind of a quote or like, you know, something. So, um. You can quote me on that. It's a cool apple. (laughs) At any rate, good ambiguity is precise. And I think the simplest way to explain it is there's a huge difference between a hundred possible readings and five possible readings or two possible readings. And if you can say clearly there's like three readings or then you can have a kind of productive ambiguity. If it's like could literally be anything, then you might as well have just given me a crumpled piece of paper with a couple zigzags on it. That's such a good point. And I think that this poem is an excellent example of that really neat ambiguity where they're Everything feels full of meaning, but not in some kind of surface way. It feels like there are several intentional directions it wants you to go in. Uh, I recently rewatched the film No Country for Old Men, and I had this intense reaction to it that is very much along these lines, where it's never telling you explicitly how to take what's going on, but every scene in it is just full of meaning and possible meaning, And it always feels like there are two or three directions that you could legitimately go analytically with every scene, even both on like the visual level, the dialogue level, the overarching, if you want to call it a story level, because it's a little bit more fragmented and impressionistic. But like that movie for me, and I know that some people's mileage varies with it on how well it works, but I think that movie is a great example of this kind of level of like ambiguous but super meaningful and interesting. The only other thing is that I found this great resource, which was just called On Tenebris, which is like three different people who have written about the poem and it excerpts the parts of their various articles that are about it. We'll link to this. Um, But this is from Melissa Gerard, who was writing about it. And she actually also referenced Toni Morrison um, and also talked about not just this poem, but a little bit mentioning the other poem, The Black Finger, and the relationship to lynching is that Toni Morrison has this bit in Beloved where she talks about how uh, this character remembers the beauty of the trees at a lynching site and is like intensely remembers the trees. And she quotes this little bit from Toni Morrison in her article, and it says, Boys hanging from the most beautiful sycamores in the world remembering the wonderful sowing trees rather than the boys. Try as she might to make it otherwise, the sycamores beat out the children every time, and she could not forgive her memory for that. There's more like analysis around that in the article, but just thinking about that excerpt and these poems, it added another layer to my experience of reading and thinking about these poems and juxtaposing the violence with the natural beauty that is present. Um, and particularly thinking about her other poem, Just About Trees. Um, And she has a couple of other poems that are very focused on the natural world and very rich in their description of it. Just thinking about all of that together was made made the whole experience of thinking about this poem more meaningful for me. So I just wanted to slip that in there. Yeah, I love that. Should we uh, read it again? Let's read it again. Tenebris by Angelina Weld Grimke. 
There is a tree by day that at night has a shadow, a hand huge and black with fingers long and black, all through the dark against the white man's house in the little wind, the black hand plucks and plucks at the bricks. The bricks are the color of blood and very small. Is it a black hand or is it a shadow? so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.